Well, as I said, it is great to see everybody. My wife gave me an encouragement as I came up. She said, maybe this time you should use the Bible. Um, <clears throat> thank you. When, when beneath my wings over there. <laughs> I love coming to worship at Rio every week. And, and um, I love my church and I love coming here. Uh, and that has been something that hasn't always been true in my life in church. You know, I... Uh, there, was a, there were seasons of time when church was a duty to me, um, when it was kind of empty. I came, you know, f- for the sake of the family. There were seasons in my life when I church was secondary. I came to see my friends or, or whatever. Um, but the Lord has grown in me a love for this church, and um, I look forward to it every week. I look forward every week to coming here. Uh, I am sort of in some ways my best self when I'm here, so sorry. That might be a little disappointing, but... I, I come here and I leave thinking, I wish I could feel this way and be this way the rest of the week. So it is, a, it is a privilege to get to come in here and worship with you. We were worshipers here long before I, I worked here, and uh, it's always a privilege and honor to get to talk to you. Um, so as I said, we're going to talk about um, David today, King David. I want you to consider David the man um, before he was king. You know, when we think of David, we think of this this grand king, right? This king of Israel, he killed Goliath. He was a, a great leader of Israel, a man after God's own heart, sat on the throne. Um, but before that, before that, before he was the, the steward of God's throne, the messianic king, the forerunner of Christ, before he was known for all of that, he was hiding in the desert running from the most powerful king in the world. Not because of the power that resided in him, in Saul, but because of the God who stood over the king of Israel. And he was running from all of that king's immense resources and jealous rage. He was struggling every day to survive against not only his attacker in Saul, but against the Philistines who were just this ever-present enemy and against even the elements, the desert heat, the cold, the dehydration, the starvation, against wild animals and disease and death. And in the midst of those desperate struggles in the desert, he wrote the words that I am about to read to you. And as I read you, I want, to wa- I want you to watch the screen and see the images for the places that he would have been that would have informed and inspired the words that he wrote. O oh God, you are my God. I earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, 
And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand is upon me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. How do you write those words in the desert? How do you write those words in hiding? How do you have that kind of inner peace and confidence in the darkest times when the world is crushing in on you? I want that. I need that. And I want to know how it is that King Saul, the king of God's people, who lived in the promised land, the land that was promised to his father Abraham, through which he would bless the nations of the world, who lived in the land flowing with milk and honey, the proof of God's sovereign hand on those people. I want to know how Saul had no peace. And David had peace in the desert. So let's see why. First Samuel chapter 23. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and are robbing the threshing floors. Let me tell you what that means. There's a village, there's a town called Calah, right? It's a city, it's got walls. And it's in the land of Judah there, west of the Dead Sea, south of Jerusalem. There's, there's Jews living there. Okay? It's their town. And the Philistines have come in, have raided the town, no doubt killed people, fought their way in. And they've raided, they've robbed the threshing floor. Let me tell you what the threshing floor is. The threshing floor is where they reap their harvest. They've just been growing food for a period of time, and now they've taken that food in to the threshing floor to prepare it to be distributed to the people, and the Philistines have just come and stolen it. They've just come stolen their life. They, they can't run to Walmart and say, oh, somebody stole my stuff. I'm going to go. I'll have to go back to the store. No. Somebody stole the food out of their children's mouths. Somebody left them with the hopeless decision to make about whether they should go rob another village or whether they should make a decision about which ones in their village would get food, which ones were suited to live. Oh, I have three children. One of them has always been sickly. I guess that'll be the one that I don't feed. That goes on in Haiti today, by the way. But this was the choice that they were left with. Therefore, David saw this. And it made him angry. It was unjust. 
It was an attack against God's people whom he had pledged to defend and protect. And so it says, therefore, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Calah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Calah against the armies of the Philistines? Now, by the way, these were not cowardly men. They knew that strategically this was a horribly dangerous thing to do. They knew that Saul was after David and by extension them. And they knew that when they went into this city, they'd be inside of walls. They'd be sitting ducks. The word would get out that they were there and they would be able to come and be attacked. They said, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more so if we go to Calah, lock ourselves in the city against the armies of the Philistines? So what did David do? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Calah, for I will give the Philistines into your hands. And David and his men went into Calah and fought with the Philistines and brought, them away, and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. Now, why do they have livestock, by the way? You may have wondered that in your personal worship. Well, possibly to haul off the food that they had stolen. So he wipes them out, he takes them down with a great blow, and he takes their livestock. And so David saved the inhabitants of Calah. David sought the Lord's leading. He sought the Lord's purpose. He sought the Lord's righteousness and justice. And then when the Lord called him, he went. Regardless of the risk in this world, he acted on what the Lord led him to do. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David at Calah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now, if you remember, Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, was the last living priest in a village that Saul had wiped out where he had killed all the priests. And Abiathar made it out, and he brought an ephod. And with this ephod, you could discern oracles from God. God would speak through the priest with the ephod. Now it was told to Saul that David had come to Calah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Saul was right that he was entering into a town that in the world's understanding was foolish. In terms of military strategy, it was a dumb thing to do. And so what did Saul do? He assigned God's support to his purposes, to his wisdom. He expressed a belief that not only was God handing David to him to kill, but this is the big one. This is the insecurity of, and pride of this king. He wanted to believe that God was actually abandoning David in his favor. Saul thinks that God is choosing him over David. And Saul summoned the people, uh, summoned all the people to war to go down to Calah to besiege David and his men. Now, we blow past that. He summoned all the people to war, okay? The standing army in Israel at that time was about 200,000 troops. So some massive portion of those troops, if not all of them, Saul assembled to march on this little town of Calah and destroy David and, by the way, all the inhabitants in it if necessary. Same town that David went to liberate and protect 
Saul, the king, would destroy in order to destroy David. Here's what troubles me about that for me. When I'm doing my personal worship, you know in your personal worship you, you start the first day by considering what this passage teaches you about God. And then the second day you consider what this passage teaches you about you. And I read that passage about Saul and I think of this, um, this bitterness that he had, this, this pride that he had, um, this earthly throne, this earthly kingdom that he had built, that he, that he was so reluctant to take when God told, when he was called by the people to take it. But then once he got it, he held on to it and he just made it in his own image and after his own likeness and in his own way and he wouldn't let it go. And I had this thought in my personal worship, what exactly is it that I hold on to? That I have, what kingdom have I built in isolation? After my own desires and my own insecurities and my own sin, my own materialism or my own want for power or fame, what is it that I build that I hold on to so tightly and against whom I, and, and for which I would attack anyone or anything, drive anything out of my life and destroy it for the sake of my kingdom? To hold on to my throne. Because that's what Saul was doing. And that's what I do. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. And then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that men of Calah surrender me. Uh, I'm sorry, has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Kalos surrender me into his hand? So he goes to the same God that he asked what to do about Kalah, the God who said in, in, in righteous justice, go to Kalah and defeat the Philistines and protect my people. Save the inhabitants of Kalah. He goes to the same God and he says, God, I've heard that Saul is going to come to attack me at Kalah. They won't surrender me, will they? Surely they'll hide me away. They'll tell a lie. They'll do something to protect me, won't they? That's unjust. How could they? People, people won't do that to me, will they? Will Saul come down here as your servant has said, O Lord, uh, has said? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come. Then David said, Will the men of Kalos surrender me and my men into the hands of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. And so David shook his fist at God. And he said, Finally, I can't take it anymore. Once and for all, God, you have, you've let this injustice pass. How can I even believe that you exist anymore? And David placed himself in moral authority over the God of the universe. He made himself omniscient against all of God's wisdom and creative power. No, that's not what he did. That's what I do. David simply listened. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Kalah, and they went wherever they could go. They scattered. They, went, they, they, they didn't have anywhere to go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Kalah, 
he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. Now you might ask, well, wait a minute. These guys are out in the desert, in this huge, vast space of land. How did he know that Saul came out to get him? Well, if, you, if you've ever been over there, you, you know that you can stand in a high place and you can see all the valleys around. It's amazing. You can stand in one or two places and you can see where 90% of everything that happened in the Old Testament happened. You can see it. And let me tell you what else you can see. You can see a king who has amassed thousands and thousands and thousands of troops marching in the desert. Because you could see the cloud. And maybe when they get close enough, you can hear the rumble. Every day. And David would move so that the rumble got farther away. And then the rumble would start coming again. And he'd see the cloud of smoke every day. Every day. Relentless. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. Now you just stop for a moment and land on that. Jonathan, the son of the insane, jealous king, snuck away and found David and encouraged him. And it says, strengthen his hand in God. And what's going on there is that he encouraged him in the midst of his fears. The language that's used there when it says that he strengthened his hand, it meant that he was dealing with someone who was afraid. Was David afraid of the cloud of dust and the rumble of the army and the crazy king who led it to kill him? Yes, he was terrified. But Jonathan came and found him in the wilderness and strengthened his hand. But it adds some words that aren't found often in Scripture. It strengthened his hand in God. That's a unique phrase. And what it means is that he didn't just encourage him as his friend. He didn't just tell him to have hope in hope. He strengthened his hand with trust in his God. So in that moment, I'm in my personal worship and I'm thinking to myself, who does that for me? Who is it in my life who is my Jonathan who would come to me in the desert, who would come to me in my struggles and who would strengthen my hand in God? And who am I for someone else? Who am I Jonathan for? Just hold on to that. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father, he doesn't disown his father, the Saul of hand my father the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. This is the last recorded meeting of David and Jonathan in Scripture. And here's the thing with Jonathan. Jonathan had the same wellspring of life in him. He had the same trust in his God that David did. But Jonathan was inextricably, hopelessly entangled with 
the legacy of death of his father. And I want you to see that while in many ways it turned out so well for David, it did not turn out so well for Jonathan. Spoiler alert, Jonathan dies in battle, participating in the hopeless folly, the generational legacy of insanity that his father brings on him. That's his story. That's his part in the redemption of the kingdom. But all that Jonathan cared for, all that he cared about, is that while he was alive, while he had breath in his lungs, before he went home to be with God, he believed that God had placed him in the life of King David, the rightful king of Israel, to be his righteous right hand, to hold him up in encouragement. That was Jonathan. And then you take Saul. You know, it's fascinating. Deep down, Saul knows that he is resisting an inevitable reality. Did you hear Jonathan say it? Jonathan says, my father knows this. He knows that he's resisting God. He knows that he's resisting wisdom and common sense. He knows that he's resisting providence deep down in his heart. But he will not allow himself to live by that reality and to keep and he keeps creating his own. I'm back to my personal worship and I'm reading this passage and I'm thinking to myself, so many things change over time in our culture, both our secular culture and our church culture. They grow and they, keep, they creep away from God's word and his wisdom and his counsel and his character. And we build fences of protection around them so that we participate in them, in them. We even celebrate them with safety and security. And it's insanity. It's insanity. We do not allow ourselves to live by the reality that God creates. And we create our own in our sin. So then it continues... Then the Ziphites, David doesn't think much of them. In Psalm 54, he calls them insolent and ruthless. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish and on the hill of Hakilah, which is, the, which is south of Jeshimon? Uh, now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire, come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And so Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go make it yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told to me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and they went to Ziph ahead of Saul. And if you remember nothing else from this message, I want you to stop right here and I want you to hear these words. There is nothing more dangerous than someone who thinks that God is on his side. 
There is nothing more dangerous than a man like Saul who thinks that God is on his side when in reality he has totally abandoned God and can no longer even hear his voice. Saul thought that he still heard God's voice even though it wasn't there. He was delusional to his own destruction. He was pathetic. Let me tell you, you take somebody like that and you give them leadership gifts and you have Adolf Hitler and you have Jim Jones. You take the rest of us and you have someone that makes a train wreck of their own personal life, a train wreck of their marriage, a train wreck of their children, a train wreck of their co-workers or those who they employ or the other businesses with which they work, a train wreck of their world. You see, Paul's pride led him to believe God was on his side. And here's the thing. God is not on a side. God is on his own side. He is on the side of truth of which he is the author. And God invites you to be on his side, to be a part of his purpose, to participate in his endeavors, He invites you to do that as his friend, as his heir to his throne, or you choose to your own destruction to be his enemy. And that's what Saul did. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah Arabah to the south of Jishaman. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul had heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went out on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. Do you see this? Do you see the mountain? And now the cloud of smoke has gotten to one side of it and David has snuck around the other side and they're right there ready to come over the mountain and attack. Here comes the cloud. Here comes the rumble. He can probably even start to hear the actual voices of the men. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. In the same story, the Philistines God used to attack Calah in which David went and liberated from the Philistines. And then he used the Philistines to save David by sending them out so that Saul would have to leave and, and go and fight them. So Saul returned and pursued after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. I want to tell you something that is amazing to me. The fact that I just stood here and uttered that word. From when I was a kid, I never wanted to go to Israel. I always just, it wasn't appealing to me. I thought it would be hot or whatever. I thought it would be, you know, commercialized and it would sort of ruin it for me if I ever went to Israel. I never really wanted to go. I had a bad attitude about it. Started coming to Rio and uh, Tom went and he came back all glowing about how amazing it was. And then he brought people and then they came back and I started hearing more and more and they started going, you got to go, you got to go. And I'm thinking, who do you think you are? You're better than everybody. Like you've been up on the mountain with Moses and you're glowing now. And all. So I just had, to, I got an even worse attitude is what I'm saying. And so 
But the Lord kept working on me, and really, uh, I came to a place where I said, you know, I really, I really ought to go once, but I'll never be able to do it. I can't afford it. You know, I can't, it can't take the time. And so uh, some folks came to me, and they said, you're going to go, and they sponsored me to go this year. So I went. And I promise you that the most profound, powerful, enduring experience I had was when I stood in Engedi. I wasn't supposed to preach today. Tom, we knew, was going to be out of town. Sam was going to preach. He couldn't do it. A few weeks ago, they asked me to step in and preach instead. None of us had any idea that the last word of this passage was Engedi. And against all my best efforts, God put my two feet on the ground in Engedi. And to get to Engedi, you have to drive and drive and drive through miles and miles of vast, dead wasteland where there is nothing. And as you're driving along, you have this, this sense, it doesn't take much imagination to imagine what would happen if the bus broke down. To imagine what would happen if you were dropped out in the middle of this desert, how long you would last, not very long. And this was the place that David had been driven from the promised land. David, the appointed king of God, the messianic king, the forerunner of Christ, had been pushed out by an insane imposter into that wilderness. But God led him to Engedi. And so you get close to Engedi, and it doesn't look like much. You're just like, oh, we're going to go look at more rocks. And you get out and you walk and you, you walk and walk and walk. And then you start seeing a little crag in the rocks. And you, you follow that and you see that that's where the path goes. And then as you get into the crag, it starts filling up a little bit, just a little bit here and there with life. A plant, a tree, an animal, a bird, a, you know. A... And then you hear something. You hear the water flowing. And you keep walking and then here comes the creek. There's this creek, the stream running down out of this this crevasse, and you keep walking, and it just gets richer and richer and richer and more and more beautiful and peaceful and full of life until you stand at the foot of a waterfall in this cave of Engedi that we believe Dave wrote many of his psalms, a cave that you'll hear about next week. That's how David did it. That's how David had the promised land in his heart, even when he was in the desert. That's how David had a spring of life flowing out of him, even when he was being crushed on all sides, because he knew the promises of God. He believed in the promises of God. He trusted his God to fulfill them. Even if his part of God's redemptive work, which was much bigger than him, and he understood would last many generations until God would redeem his heavens and earth, his creation again, until it would all be like in Getty. Even if it meant that his little part of God's redemptive story was dying in the desert at the hand of his best friend's crazy father. He knew that his God would bring redemption to his creation 
And he knew that that's the reason he existed, was to glorify that God and be a part of his redemption. He could not change his external circumstances. God was in control of those. God used those external circumstances to challenge him, to grow him, to form him. And he does the same thing for you. And I know, I know, I look across the room and I know that everybody in here has at least seasons of times where you feel like you're in that wilderness with the world crashing in on you. Maybe it's every moment to moment, day to day, month to month. Maybe it's a season in your life you're in right now that you just think you're in the wilderness. Where is God? He has abandoned me. Everything screams that, that, that he's abandoned me. Well, for those times, God has given you David. David is a gift. Because David reveals that your hope of salvation, your hope of eternal flourishing, is God living inside of you by the power of Christ. And when you have that, nothing else matters. David had peace in the desert because he trusted that God would save. So I want to leave you with a couple thoughts. I want to take this out of ancient time and into your life and into your heart. The first thing is this. Pursue your identity in the Lord. David did that. Saul pursued his in isolation from the Lord. He created his own identity in isolation, and then he tried to believe that the Lord would help him protect it. David did not allow circumstances to change who he was. To steal his peace, to steal his rest, to steal his confidence in his God. He was faithful to his Lord. He was in tune with his Lord's objectives. He was courageous and he was righteous and he would not let his external circumstances steal those things from him. Pursue your identity in the Lord. Second thing, surrender yourself, I'm sorry, surround yourself, surround yourself with friends like Jonathan. You have to be intentional about it. You know when we say gather, plug in, serve here at Rio, gather means worship. We worship our God. Well, plug in means to have friends like David and to be, I mean, like Jonathan and to be a friend like Jonathan. That's what it means. It means to be in loving, biblical, accountable community with people who aren't just your friend. They're not just going to defend you. You ever notice that? When you, when you, you got a, a battle with somebody, you can always find somebody that's going to agree with you, right? It's going to defend you just because they love you or like you or whatever. Well, that's not what you want. You want someone who loves you enough and knows God's word and is in tune with his wisdom and is like Jonathan so that they love you but they are not impressed by you. And they will bring the truth to you because they love you. They'll hold you accountable to it. They'll encourage you in it. They'll help you to make wise decisions. You need Jonathans and you need to be a Jonathan. And if, that, if this church grows in that, we will grow in our power to build God's kingdom. And your life will change. Third thing, make sure your purposes are God's purposes. Do you think God's on your side in something? Right now, you have a debate maybe in the house between you and your wife or husband. Or Do you think God's on your side? Well, there's one question I, I want to ask you. How do you know? What's your criteria? Let me tell you what mine usually is. It's like this. I believe God's on my side because I really, 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 really want to do this thing. Really? I mean, that's got to be the Holy Spirit, right? Because I really want to do it, or I really want it, or I don't want to do it. So that's got to be God telling me that. Well, that's not a very good test. 
Remember what I said. Uh, you work for him. He doesn't work for you. So test your purposes against his purpose. Here are a couple things. A couple personal worship things. Is my purpose righteous? Is it righteous? Does it stand up morally, ethically? Is that clear or is it in the gray area? Well, if it's in the gray area, it's probably not God's purpose. Maybe you need wise counsel, but it's certainly you need to consider if your purpose is righteous. A good litmus test for if it's righteous. Is it selfless or self-serving? Is my purpose going to make others better? Is it going to make the world better? Is it going to make my church better? Is it going to make my, my, my office better? Is it going to make my children better? Or is my purpose about me? If it really is only about me, that's, that's risky. That's risky that that would be God's purpose. Another one. Is it, bare in, is it bathed in prayer like David's prayer? You know, when David prays for things, he doesn't pray self-servingly. Oh, Lord, bless me in my efforts to go do this thing that I want to do. He says, Lord, show me the truth, and you tell me what to do, and I'll go do it. And if I do it wrong, then may you curse me. May you strike me dead if I don't do it right. Is it bathed in prayer like David's? Last one. Is it the fruit of wise counsel and of biblical community, or is it just forged in isolation? Now, what does that mean? Do you make decisions like this? When I want to do something and I really, really want to do it and I really don't want anybody to tell me not to do it, I disengage from those who would speak truth to me. I hide. I get counsel from a few people I know will agree with me and then I do whatever the heck I want. When I do premarital counseling, it's like four sessions. The first one, I scare the heck out of them on purpose. I give them divorce statistics. I tell them horrible stories about marriage train wrecks that I know of. Many of you in here I've told about. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> now, I'm, I'm using a little hyperbole, but not much. Now, why do I do that? Why do I give them a big reality check on the first day? It, it, there's two reasons. One, because I really want them to think carefully about what they're doing in a culture that doesn't support it much. But the other is I want to see if they really want wise counsel. Are they really open to wise counsel? Will they come to the next meeting? Will they be transparent and open about, will they, are they seeking the truth? Or are they seeking to be validated? Because I don't have time to validate them in their dysfunction. Well, I know that I do that, unless I'm intentional about seeking wise counsel. You know, I've only had two divorces that I know of, of all the people that I've done weddings for. Each one of them, one of them refused to do premarital counseling, and the other one, I, I knew that as we did it, I was, I was hearing what, I was, what they thought I wanted to hear. So, the last thing I'll say about determining whether it's God's purpose or your purpose is, have you taken it to wise counsel in biblical community, or have you forged it in isolation? The last thing I want you to take away today is this. Rest in the Engedi that God has given you. Now, there is a creator of that Engedi that I'm going to talk about in a moment, but let me tell you what that Engedi is that little oasis in the desert. It is your church, it is your family in Christ, and it is His Word that He's left behind for you to teach you wisdom and truth and where to plant and where not to plant and where the dangerous 
crevasses are and where the life springs are, that's the Engedi that God has given you very tangibly. Don't say, well, Jesus, you know, he doesn't have skin on. I can't see Jesus. Well, Jesus has given you your Engedi, that is the people on your left and on your right. He's given you this community of faith to participate in and be a part of and bring your strength to and bring your weakness to and be ministered to within it. This is your Engedi. But from where does this spring come? Where does true rest come? It comes in your Redeemer, Jesus Christ. David didn't know it, but it was Jesus in whom he put his hope. It was the perfect Messianic King and Redeemer, Jesus. And he was saved by that Jesus he did not yet know. But he knows him now. And maybe they read his psalms together. God, through the prophet Isaiah, says this. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. In that David found his rest. And in that we find ours. And that's where the Lord brought me, kicking and screaming right there. In the middle of the desert. Well, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song. And I want to hear it. It's a new one, and it's awesome. And I want you to imagine yourselves with David around the campfire there at night, when they don't think that anybody can see or hear them, and they are just using their whole soul to celebrate the God who brought them to Engedi and rest in his love. So let me pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of Engedi, this little story that played out in your grand story where David physically left the promised land into the wilderness. And then he found in Gedi this oasis, the spring of life in the wilderness. And through that story, you have revealed to us who you are, Father. You've given us a little foreshadowing of the Jesus Christ who came like a wellspring in the desert and sprung up to give us eternal life. So now, Father, we sing as though we believe that reality. In Jesus' name, amen.